Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 524 for the 1st of January, 2017. This week, a 10-second look at what's new on the website this year, then right into trying to figure out whether a Chromebook would be a good choice or not. My attempt to find a way to use Evernote ended abruptly. I'll explain why. In short circuits, the Wild West atmosphere of the Internet continues, and the situation won't get better anytime soon. Might there be some middle way to give police access to data on electronic devices in certain kinds of cases? In spare parts, only on the website, an attempt to train emergency responders using virtual reality to make the exercises both more realistic and more safe. And Microsoft Teams has been released in test mode for enterprise customers. The first program in January is usually when I tell you about changes that have been made to the site. This year, you'll be in for a big surprise. There aren't any, at least not many. There's a new directory for 2017. The copyright dates have been updated. You'll see 2017 referenced in the menu. Otherwise, not much. So let's just get on with the first item. Who needs a Chromebook? A little more than two years ago, I bought a Chromebook. I haven't used it as much as I expected to, but it's still a handy little computer. It won't replace a desktop, a notebook, or even a tablet, but it's just right in some circumstances. For one thing, they are incredibly inexpensive. That's not to say cheap. Chromebooks seem to be built fairly well. They just don't cost much. Granted, a computer that sells for $150 shouldn't be expected to have a lot of power, but you're not going to be running Microsoft Office Suite or Adobe's Creative Cloud applications on a Chromebook. For $60 a year, though, users can add G Suite. That's Google's business productivity suite. It includes Gmail, Hangouts, Calendar, Google+, Drive, Docs, Sheets, Forms, Slides, Sites, the Admin Console, Vault, and 30 gigabytes of online storage. At double the price, $10 a month, the plan also includes video and voice conferencing, one terabyte of online storage per user, or an unlimited amount of storage if you enroll six or more users, and a variety of enterprise functions that can be used from desktop systems, notebook computers, and Chromebooks. Just about anything that runs on a Chromebook runs inside the browser. Security is generally considered to be robust, and there's no need to back up individual machines because files are stored online. They also update themselves pretty much automatically. The user does need to give the operating system permission to perform the update, though. So for a very small initial cost and a low monthly access fee, a business can put a basic work computer in the hands of every employee. Or a school district would be able to provide every student with a functional machine that offers Internet access and all of the applications needed for homework. Several manufacturers even make a tiny desktop device that runs Chrome. You'll see a picture of one on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Just plug in a monitor and a keyboard. Or if you want really small, take a look at the Chrome bit. Just plug it into a monitor or a smart television. 
using the HDMI port, then pair it with a Bluetooth keyboard and a mouse. It's being promoted as a cost-effective way to travel with a computer. You still have to carry around a keyboard, but some of those are really small. The most expensive Chromebook used to be the 3-pound Pixel. It has been discontinued because, after all, it was overkill and overpriced. However, for about $400, you can buy a 3-pound Chromebook with a screen that's just slightly less than 13 inches and has 2560 by 1700 pixel resolution, an i5 processor with 4 gigabytes of RAM, and a 64 gigabyte solid-state drive. Wait a minute, that solid-state drive sounds kind of small. Well, it would be by PC standards, but you're not going to be storing files on it, and the applications aren't the behemoths that are found on PCs and Macs. I keep coming back to, it's not for everybody. If you must use Microsoft Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and Access, Chromebooks are not for you. If you must use Adobe Photoshop, Lightroom, Dreamweaver, InDesign, Audition, or Premiere, a Chromebook is not for you. But if you need internet access, a web browser, an email client, a word processor, a spreadsheet, and a presentation program, a Chromebook might be exactly what you're looking for. And that's particularly true if you're working with a limited budget. You may have heard that Google has eliminated Chrome apps for Windows machines and Macs. That's true. But they continue to be offered for Chromebooks. Google has its own line of Chromebooks, but they're also available from HP, Acer, Samsung, Dell, and a bunch of others. Mine happens to be a Samsung device. The Chrome operating system is a Linux variant, and Android apps are supported on some Chromebooks. Mine is not one of them. If that's an important feature for you, be sure that the model you plan to buy offers Android app support. There's a list that shows which Chromebooks do offer that support, and you'll find a link to the list from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Chromebooks have been around for nearly six years, but they didn't sell particularly well until schools realized that they were viable alternatives to the very expensive iPads and MacBooks. In 2016, computer analyst IDC reported that Chromebooks outsold Apple's range of Macs for the first time in the United States. The vast majority of those sales were to schools. Battery life is also excellent, no doubt mainly because of the modest hardware required to run the Chrome operating system. There's a great deal of variety in Chromebooks on the marketplace, so it's important to understand what all is available before you decide to buy one. Fortunately, Google has a page for that, and I have a link to that page from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Keep in mind that the prices shown are those recommended by the manufacturer, and you'll probably be able to find models at slightly lower prices than what's shown. Many articles have been written in praise of Evernote, an information organizer that looks like a plain text version of Microsoft's OneNote. This is not one of them. I've used OneNote for a long time and have tried to make Evernote my friend several times. Something that I bought in April or May of 2016 gave me the Pro version for free for a year, so I committed to using it instead of OneNote. The experiment ended abruptly just before Christmas. 
I have moved all of my notes from Evernote to OneNote, deleted the application from all computers and mobile devices, and closed my account, even though nearly half a year remains on the free trial of the Pro version. With a lead-in like that, you might be wondering why. Well, starting in January, Evernote employees will be able to read any of the notes created by users. Let that sink in for just a moment. Sensitive information, of course, should never be stored in Evernote, so this would be a bad place to store usernames and passwords. But even innocuous information that you store in Evernote might be information that you'd prefer to maintain privately. Within days, there was so much pushback from users that Evernote updated its spin to state that it would request permission before allowing employees to look at your notes. Sorry, that's not good enough. The fact that this was even considered tells me all I need to know about Evernote and privacy. And I wonder if the company will ask permission if it's investigating what it believes to be a violation of its terms of service. In fact, Evernote has now delayed implementation of the new policy, but that's still too little and too late. The problem is actually the result of good intentions gone bad. Evernote attempts to predict what the user needs and perform the task automatically. That's good. For example, if you're making a list, and if you're Santa Claus, checking it twice, Evernote could realize that and add bullet points or checkboxes. Users would need to opt into the Improved Experience program that allows Evernote to use the data. The trouble is that user experience programs generally receive usage statistics from the program, not the data stored in the program's files. And that's what most people would expect, just the statistics. If you think you're providing anonymous usage data that Evernote can use to improve the program, you'd be more than a little surprised to find out that the notes you've stored are being used for the program, and even more surprised to find out that Evernote employees would have access to them. Evernote CEO Chris O'Neill is trying to walk the change back. We made it seem like we didn't care about the privacy of our customers or their notes, he said, adding the company will change its policy. But this error actually follows another error. Earlier in the year, Evernote increased the cost of its premium service from $6 a month to $8 and pushed its basic service from $1 a month to 4 At the same time, Evernote significantly degraded its free program to force more people into the paid program. For example, the free version can sync notes only to two devices. So, two strikes, Evernote. And then there's this. I like to use formatting to provide information about the content of my notes. Microsoft's OneNote is surprisingly weak in that category, but Evernote is abysmal. I would expect more from Microsoft because the company could call on the components of Word to improve OneNote, but even so, it offers far better formatting than Evernote. So, three strikes, Evernote. You're out. <music>
and far too many consumers continue to be victimized when they repeat unsafe behavior. Symantec's Norton Antivirus Division has released this year's version of their Cybersecurity Insights report. One of this year's highlights is consumers are allowing hackers into their homes through connected devices. This year's report is based on surveys of nearly 21,000 adults in 21 countries to examine their online behaviors, attitudes, and security habits, and then to determine how they fared when dealing with cybercrime. The United States is the most susceptible developed country for cyber attacks, where 39% of Americans personally experienced cybercrime within the last year. That compares with 31% of people globally. Netherlands had the lowest rate of cybercrime, just 14%, compared to Indonesia's 59%. More than any other country, 64% of parents in the United States believe their kids are more likely to be bullied online than on a playground. In other countries, the concern is much lower. For example, Germany, 31%. The most common vector for malware continues to be email. Yet 40% of Internet users in the United States are incapable of identifying a fraudulent message. Mistakes need not be repeated. A single lapse can have devastating consequences. Open a malicious attachment or follow a link to a compromised website, and it is likely that your computer will be compromised. Being smarter about threats we face doesn't require a lot of work. By adopting a few basic behaviors, we mitigate the risks. For example, protect your accounts with strong, unique passwords that use a combination of at least 10 uppercase and lowercase letters, symbols, and numbers. Think twice before clicking on random links or opening unsolicited messages and attachments, particularly from people you don't know. Don't access any personal information or social media accounts on unprotected Wi-Fi networks and use security software on your devices to help protect you against the latest threats. If you'd like more information, you can view Symantec's presentation. There's a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website, and you can download the entire report. There's also a link to that from the TechBiter Worldwide website. How much access should police agencies be given to data on personal devices? This seems not to be a one-solution-fits-all situation, but both technology companies and police agencies seem to be trying to make it one. The Constitution has a provision that prohibits search and seizure without due cause. Specifically, the Fourth Amendment says, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Now consider this. Police in Bentonville, Arkansas, are investigating a homicide. They would like to know if an Amazon Echo device in the home might have clues about the crime. Amazon has refused to provide any information. 
Police found the Amazon Echo in the home where a man was found dead in a hot tub on the morning following a late-night party. They are interested because the Echo constantly listens for the wake-up command, either Amazon or Alexa, and then sends a bit of what you said before issuing the command, as well as what follows the command, to Amazon, where it's analyzed and a response is sent back to the Echo. Commands are stored at Amazon, and users can review them and delete specific recordings. Now, unless the killer or the victim said either Amazon or Alexa during the commission of the crime, the Echo would have recorded nothing. But nobody knows. So it's unlikely the police would find any clues here. Yet this seems to be exactly the kind of case that might benefit from an interpretation of the Fourth Amendment that would allow them to look. Nothing is needed for you to take a look at spare parts, only on the website. This week, an attempt to train emergency responders using virtual reality to make the exercises both more realistic and more safe. And Microsoft Teams has been released in test mode for enterprise customers. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.